Good day, everyone. I am Dr. James Ahrens, the ADHD author and veterinarian. Today I'm presenting my revolving door days. Starting up a large animal practice doesn't happen overnight, leaving me with lots of free time. The days I wasn't called out, I found myself bored and my mind wandered, a detrimental aspect for an ADHD mind because boredom generates an overwhelming anxiety that things aren't right. Plus, that loneliness thing gnawed at me. So finding a girlfriend became a priority. And so I dated several women over a short period of time. I call this disastrous time my revolving door period. I'll open by playing a tune from Mary's third album, You're Just Between Love. She's gone and you're so
Thank you, Mary. Now on to chapters 26, 27, and 28 of my autobiography, Fear of Failure. Chapter 26. The Atascadero State Hospital Woman. In spring 1984, I received a phone call from Larry, my old gas station boss from L.A. He married Patty, and they moved up to Davis when Patty began UC Davis. Larry came across a job opening for a dairy vet at Soledad Prison. They needed a vet with dairy experience who could maintain quality milk production and an optimal pregnancy rate in a herd of 700 cows. They needed someone to preg check once a week and be on call for the occasional emergency. I was a bit reluctant as Soledad is over two hours from Paso, but the added income would surely help. I was already traveling a long way to some of my other clients. Lori arranged for me to do vet work with a cattle ranching family out in Coalinga. They agreed to try me out, so I started visiting Coalinga and then Avenal once a week. Other people in the Coalinga area found out a horse vet was available, and I started to build up a clientele there. I was asked by the Ag Department head of West Hill College in Coalinga to start vetting their cattle operations. I was also hired by Harris Ranch to evaluate the semen quality on 14 bulls. This was a big account. Harris Feedlot was the largest in the state, and this was the ranching part of their cattle operations. Larry explained the California state bidding procedures to me and helped me formulate a proposal. One morning, Lori received a phone call from a prison inmate. At first, she didn't know how to respond. The fellow told her to find a pen and paper and to write these numbers down. He didn't have much time, he said, so she had to hurry. He gave her the most competitive bids on the procedures outlined and told her to resubmit my application. Evidently, the inmates were unhappy with the current vet and wanted a new one. I resubmitted my application and received the job for a year. The weekend before my first appearance for work at Soledad, I was having dinner with a group of people. A woman my age was interested in coming along with me. She had a college friend, Linda, whose family owned a vast amount of cattle land in the Pacheco Mountains east of Soledad and Hollister. She arranged a weekend to visit her friend and wanted to know if I would like to have company to the prison and spend a weekend on the cattle ranch. That was all right with me, so we arranged to pick up time. I loaded four bottles of homemade wine into my vet truck, made sure my overnight kit was adequate, and checked my veterinary drug inventory. When I went to get this woman, she loaded her stuff into the pickup. Settling into the passenger seat, she opened the glove box and put a bag of pot inside. What are you doing? We could get busted, I exclaimed. I work at ASH, she said. Those were the initials for Atascadero State Hospital. There's a check-in spot there, too. I know what to tell the guards this isn't a big deal, she reassured me. I believed her, and we drove up Highway 101 to Soledad. Do you know where to enter, she asked. Tom, the dairy manager, told me to drive through the north gate. It's not as busy as the main entrance. That's the stuff I'm talking about, Doc. We guards watch each other's back, you know. However, because the truck was unfamiliar to the guards, I was directed to the main gate, which is in an area 100 feet long and 50 feet wide, with 20-foot-high fencing topped with barbed wire. Once the entry gate closed, an inspection was started on the truck. The doors were left open while I watched as they looked all over. One guard found an old, dry, crushed beer can under my seat. I didn't want a litter, I told the fellow. He opened the glove compartment. What is this? he asked. It's some weed from a cattle pasture that needs to be analyzed, I lamely replied. I don't think so, he retorted. Other guards came up and began looking through the entire truck for more contraband. 
However, they were quickly frustrated because my truck carried lots of bottles of pills and liquids, all legal, all used for my patients. I smiled wondering how many bottles of pills they were going to unscrew before they quit unscrewing things. I'm sure they were looking for contraband, but my medicine cabinet in the truck is legal. The guy unscrewing my pill bottles soon stopped. Those are antibiotics, I told the man, seeing him squint inside the SMZ TMP bottle of oblong white pills. The guards took the woman inside while I anxiously paced inside the gate entryway. After a while, the head guard came out and said the woman started crying and confessed to the scam. She told them the entire thing was her idea. Thankfully, they believed her, confiscated the marijuana, and asked if I had anything I needed to declare. I pulled open the drawer with my four bottles of wine and told them to take them. They said it wasn't necessary, but I asked them to keep it as a thank you. When the guards finally called the all-clear, I learned the milking crew already let the cows out. We would start next week. As we drove from Soledad to Hollister, I was shaking inside and angry as hell. I didn't talk to the woman. We met Linda and her husband at the Hollister Country Club, where we had lunch and drinks. Afterward, we went inside to the old family house in downtown Hollister. The house was one story, spreading over half a city block, reminding me of a museum more than a home. The garage held a carriage and a vintage automobile, while the inside of the house contained antiques and implements used a long time ago. We headed east into the mountains, and after an hour, arrived at the family homestead, a place so remote electrical power came from a generator turned on at night, so the family could watch TV. Their water came from a large metal cistern that collected water from the barn roof during the rainy season. Evidently, the family could live on the water from this reservoir until the next rainy season. I was resting on the bed when the woman knocked on my door to see if we could talk. But she soon left because I didn't say much. I was still too angry about the prison episode. The next morning after breakfast, we went out to do cattle sorting on horseback. Lunch came around, and I announced I needed to get back to my office. The woman I had come up with stayed a few more days. I guess Linda took her home. End of chapter. Chapter 27. The Hispanic Woman. I joined the Paso Robles JCs, a community drinking organization for young men. The club was similar to Rotary Club or Lions Club, but tailored to younger professionals. After receiving permission from Donna, the wife of the ranch owner, I organized a picnic out at Oak Country Ranch in the late spring of 1984. We could use the lake for an inner tube water polo match, and I hosted a barbecue. My current girlfriend was a Hispanic woman named Julie. My sister-in-law, Carolyn, introduced us about a week earlier, and I was enjoying a whirlwind romance during those seven days. Julie helped me prepare for the barbecue and stayed as my helper. After the guests left, Julie and I found time for our dessert. I showed her my study room in the trailer. It was tiny, probably six by eight feet, and had a closet along the wall. But it was big enough to hold my metal desk and chair, the one I carried with me from Davis. I spent a zillion study hours at it, and with that big desk, there was no room for other things in the room. I brought Julie in. She sat on my lap as we examined items from my earlier life. As I was going through a drawer, I came across a ring case. It held my wedding ring. I opened it up to show her and promptly closed it to look for other unusual items. After a time, she told me she had to get home, so we hugged and kissed goodnight. We were getting along well. Julie asked if I could drive her up to a family reunion in Modesto. I saw no reason not to. 
She told me I'd be sleeping in her brother's room. The party was typically Hispanic. Everyone spoke Spanish, and there was much food as well as drinks available. At that time in my life, I was more apprehensive than aggressive in social situations. Today, I'd have gone up to introduce myself, and I would have made it to the cooking place where I could lend my opinion. But they probably wouldn't be able to understand me anyways. I spent the time nodding my head and smiling stupidly. Nobody was rude to me, but neither did anyone find his or her way to see what I was about. Early the next morning, my beeper alerted me to a call. It was from one of my Arab breeding ranches. One of the mares was coming into heat and needed to be palpated to get ready for breeding. I talked to Julie about leaving early, and she told me it was no problem. She could take the bus back to Paso. I returned to attend my practice, but didn't hear from Julie for a couple of months. I asked Carolyn what happened, and she told me Julie went back to her boyfriend. About a month after that, Julie called me saying she wanted to go horseback riding out of the ranch. That was all right with me, so we set up a time. When she arrived, she took me into the living room. We need to smoke this, she said. I want to be more relaxed. She pulled out a gigantic fat joint, lit it up, and urged me to help her. I complied and realized this was some killer pot. Soon I was immobilized, just sitting on the couch. Julie announced she had to go to the bathroom. I sat on the sofa for an extended amount of time. Finally, I got up to see what was going on. Julie was in the study opening my desk drawers. What are you doing? I asked her. I'm looking for a pencil. I need to write something down. I thought we were going riding, I reminded her. I think it's best I leave now, she replied. The joint has made me way too stoned to ride. Two weeks later, I was going through my office desk. I happened upon my ring case. I opened it up, and it was empty. I called Carolyn to see where Julie was. Carolyn said Julie left town, and she didn't know for sure where she was anymore. That's when I realized owning jewelry was more of a liability than a benefit. If a person had valuable belongings, the precious relic became a sought-after treasure to those seeking a quick monetary return. It made me think, what is the purpose of jewelry? Having jewelry on is an ostentatious sign of showing others how much money a person has. So what? After a person dies, the treasure ends up in the center of bitter arguing and disagreement among the heirs. Since then, the only jewelry I have worn is my wedding ring, and I stopped wearing that because I had to take it off every day for surgery and didn't want to lose it. So I think it is safe in a jewelry box. Somewhere. End of chapter. Chapter 28. The Dutch Woman. In the fall of 1984, a young Dutch woman showed up at my office. I met her working at a horse ranch in Kalinga for Tom, the trainer of thoroughbred horses for the track. He hired her to be his assistant. She lived in a trailer on the stable property and worked with Tom daily. When she came to my office, she told me that she no longer worked there and came to Paso to be with her sister. Tom advised her to seek me out. I explained we had no job openings. She replied she wasn't looking for a job, just wanted to touch base with me here in Paso Robles. I was flattered. Here was a lovely woman who seemed interested in me. I told her to come back the next day. We could go out on calls together. She accompanied me to some horse calls in a Tascadero. Finishing up, I suggested we drive down Highway 41 for dinner in Morro Bay, less than half an hour away. Once we had settled into the restaurant, I ordered wine. She told the waitress she didn't need anything to drink. We had a quick snack and headed back to Paso. I had uneasy feelings about her and decided not to spend more time or money on the lady. 
but at the time I was ready to drop her off, she asked if we could spend another day together. Okay, I said, deciding it was okay to take her on calls. I just wasn't going to push the sex thing with her. She seemed too needy to me. I was not a psychologist, nor was I mature enough to handle her neediness. I was hardly able to control my own. I told her I was heading to Soledad Prison in the morning and she was free to come along. She agreed. When we arrived at Soledad, the Dutch woman told me she felt uncomfortable going into the prison, that it was best to leave her for a few hours at a restaurant in Soledad. I complied, but now wondered if she had any interest in working with me. She hadn't helped me with anything in the last two days she was with me, hadn't asked any questions or offered any opinions. She was becoming a real drag. After my prison work, I picked her up from the Hole in the Wall restaurant and headed back home, stopping at a few ranches for calls on my way down south. I dropped her off at her sister's apartment and we agreed to get together the next day. But I only decided that to be rid of her. I knew I would be away for an early morning emergency sometime after six. There were too many unconnected dots in this person's mind to have a reasonable relationship with and I was planning on not seeing her anymore. About an hour later she called me up and told me something had gone wrong. I needed to come back to her apartment. I was irritated. Still too weak to say no, I reluctantly said okay. When I drove back to town and she opened the door for me, everything seemed fine. The TV was on, and she and her sister were talking to each other in Dutch. I sat down in a beanbag chair, pretending to watch TV, and wondering what the fuck was happening here. The woman and her sister continued to yammer on in Dutch. Finally, I said I needed to get back. As I closed the door and was walking out to my truck, the door opened, and the Dutch woman ran out. It's so tense in there, she exclaimed. I want to be with you tonight, she said. I was uncomfortable, telling her I thought the idea was a poor one. She should stay at her apartment. But she insisted she would be okay sleeping on the couch at my place. I acquiesced. After returning home, I threw her some blankets and a pillow and told her I needed to go to bed. Can't we just talk? she asked. No, I'm tired and need to crash. Good night, I replied. I quickly took my clothes off, crawled under the blankets, and fell asleep. Sometime in the night, I woke up to her sitting on top of me. I was lying on my back, and the Dutch woman had taken her clothes off and was proceeding to jump my bones. As I woke more, I realized the exquisite feelings of a beautiful present, one I was enjoying immensely, and I let the process finish itself. But after we consummated the liaison, I became angry with her and myself. I hadn't planned for this, but I had also done nothing to stop it. I jumped up and told her to get her clothes on. I was taking her back to her apartment. The next morning I received a call from Lori. She told me the Dutch woman was asking for me. I told Lori to tell her I was not interested. A minute later, Lori came back to let me know the woman said she was pregnant. How in the hell do you know you're pregnant the night after having sex? I asked Lori incredulously. I guess some women just know, she replied noncommittally. Well, just tell her I'm off to some calls. The Dutch woman continued to call throughout the day. Finally, I agreed to meet her in San Luis Obispo for dinner. Afterward, we took a walk around town. I told her it was all right if she decided to keep the baby. I would support the child. But there was no way I wanted to be involved with her. I left her on that note. A few weeks later, I received a call from her sister. The woman was at Twin Cities Hospital having a miscarriage. I entered her hospital room and found her talking with a Catholic priest. He informed me they were about done anyway and left. I told the woman how sorry I was and split feeling lucky and euphoric as I walked down the hospital hallway. 
a horrible mess was taken care of, and I was delighted. Thank you, Lord. Thank you very much. I don't think I had spoken to God since I left the Mormon church. A few weeks later, I was rethinking the incident and realized a miscarriage justifying a hospital visit indicated a pregnancy much more advanced than three weeks. The woman had come to me pregnant, probably at the urging of her former boss, who likely had gotten her pregnant. I was caught in the crosshairs of entrapment and did not have the knowledge or experience to help me see otherwise. I suspect she was under the age of 21 as well, which was why she didn't want to go inside the prison and said no to the alcohol during our first lunch. You would think with all of my medical training, I would have known that a woman can't know she is pregnant after one night. Oh well, lesson learned. End of chapter. Thank you, Brian Ortiz, for narrating chapters 26, 27, and 28 of my autobiography, Fear of Failure. I'll end the podcast with one of Mary's upbeat, keep at it songs, Never Give Up. It's a tune from her second album. Feelings come and go But this I know we are Believing what we must mm-hmm. No matter what they say Or take away I still
Thank you all for listening. You can follow this story on my blog, jeadvm.com. Once on my blog's front page, go to the menu, pick My Books, and click on Fear of Failure. The entire autobiography can be purchased as an old-fashioned paper book or an e-book, as well as an 11-disc audiobook set, or can be downloaded from the audiobook site ACX. More details are on my website, jeadvm.com.